So here we are, back in the second chapter of Hebrews, as many of you, I think, would remember. We've made our way through the first two chapters, but I wanted to to pause before we moved into chapter three and go back and look uh, in more detail at a couple of the verses. Last week, we looked in detail at verse three and talked about uh, the greatest thing ever, uh, our great salvation. And today, I want to focus on verse nine, as I mentioned to you, that we would come back to verse nine. And this, this ninth verse is one of those uh, for me, you know, there are a number of verses in the Bible that just stand out to me. And I, I'm sure you probably have that experience too. You, you underline that verse or you highlight it. And every time you read it, you, there's just something about it. And th- this ninth verse for me has always been like that. I think from the very first time I read it, it's just like, you know, they're just, it's such a powerful powerful verse here, and I don't think I've ever actually uh, preached on, uh, specifically on the verse. I've taught through Hebrews a few times, but, you know, I just, I felt compelled to just take this ninth verse and really sort of dig a little bit deeper into it, so uh, that's what I want to do here now, but again, just to remind you of the background here in the context, beginning in verse 5, Um, we read, for he, speaking of God, has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? So the certain place is Psalm 8. We just read Psalm 8 together. The author is quoting from the 8th Psalm. And so he says, for you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And so here we see that God intends to give mankind total dominion over all creation, and he's going to do it through Jesus Christ. In another place, Paul refers to Jesus as the second man and the last Adam. And that's kind of what's being talked about here. Adam, Jesus is called the last Adam because Adam was... Uh, not just the first human being, but he was the representative of the human race. He was the head of humanity. And now what God is doing is he's created a new humanity, and Jesus is the head over that, and Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. He's going to, to rule over all creation, and we are going to rule over that with him. But here, in verse 9, the author tells us of the process the Son of God passed through that led to his being crowned with glory and honor and and being made king over all creation, which is is a fact now but is not fully realized yet. But, But there was a process that he went through. And it's important that we understand that he went through this process. It's important that we think through uh, the process. And, and this, this process is stated in different ways 
in different places here in the scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, this process is uh, spelled out for us as well. There Paul is urging the Christians to have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And here's the process. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he humbled himself. He became of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant and he was found in the likeness of men. He was found in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then Paul says this. He says, therefore... God has highly exalted him. So here as we're talking about uh, Jesus, we're, we're, we need to make the, the distinction between his deity and his humanity. And here the focus is on his humanity. Of course, as deity, he's the creator of everything. He's the heir of everything. He's the sustainer of everything. As deity, he's the ruler of the universe. But now he, he comes... Uh, as a man, and it's as a man that he, he ultimately is, is going to be elevated because he goes through this process. Now, the ninth verse spells that process out for us. And so the process begins with the incarnation. And we talked about this already, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But uh, this is where the process began. Who being in the form of God, Philippians 2, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but humbled himself and ultimately became a human being. That's it. That's the same thing that's being stated here, but it's stated just a little bit differently. Who was made a little lower than the angels. That's a reference to the incarnation. And actually, the, the way it's stated, who was made a little lower than the angels, it really probably should read he was made for a little while lower than the angels. So here he is. He's God the Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. But in this process of being exalted uh, as the ultimate man, the head of the human race, and bringing everybody else with him, he, he, he's here, but then he condescends. He comes down here, and for a little while, temporarily, he is made lower than the angels. He becomes a man. He becomes a human being. And of course, as human beings, in that uh, one sense, we are, we are lower than the angels. We don't have the strength they have, the power they have, the, the understanding. We're inferior to them in that sense. And so for this brief season, that was part of the process that Jesus would pass through. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, in this process is that he would suffer death. And so we see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now, we all are familiar with the fact that Jesus died, right? We know that. And, of course, we talk about that all the time and, you know, his death on the cross and that's how we're saved so we, we understand that Jesus died, but what I don't think we understand is how extraordinary it was that Jesus died. Because the reality is, Jesus is the only human being that death really had no claim on. 
So for Jesus to die was extraordinary. It, it was nothing like for, for us to die. We, we die because we're sinners. But Jesus is not a sinner. So the very fact that he dies is in and of itself this uh, amazing, mysterious kind of a thing. Uh, years ago, I, I came across a, a commentator uh, by the name of Adolf Safir. And Adolf Safir, Sapphire, he's, uh, he's a, a Jewish believer in Jesus as his Messiah. And he's written several books, and, and a little bit from, from the Jewish angle. But he wrote a commentary on Hebrews, and he talks about this very thing. I wanted to read to you some of what he wrote. He said this. He said, we need to remember that Jesus, or that between Jesus, as he was in himself, and death, there existed no connection. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He was without sin, without spot, and blameless. He had never transgressed the law. In him, Satan could find nothing. Remember, Jesus said that at one point. I think it's in John chapter 16. He said, the prince of this world is coming. He's referring to Satan. Yet he has nothing in me. See, Jesus was the one person Satan had no actual claim over. And that's what he's talking about there. And that's what uh, Sapphire is getting at here. He says, death, since he had never transgressed the law, in him Satan could find nothing. Death had no personal or direct relation to or claim on him. Death, he said, is the punishment for transgression of the law, yet Jesus didn't transgress the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ, as far as his humanity was concerned, was free from the power of death. No power could kill the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. He goes on to say, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Life, of his own power and will laid down his life. The death of Jesus in this respect is different from the death of any human being. It was the free, voluntary, spontaneous act and energy of his will. When the Lord Jesus died, he put forth great power. He willed to die. He willed to die. You see, as Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. Had Jesus not willed to die, he could not have died. But it was this process that he submitted himself to. The first step was in becoming a man. The second step was yielding himself up to death. But I think it's important that we get that understanding in our minds that, uh, that death had no claim on Jesus. So had he not laid down his life, and he's said when he made that statement, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. And then he said this. He said, I have the power to lay it down. Jesus had to exert his own power in order to give up his life. Because again, death is the consequence of sin. Jesus has no sin. So he exerts his power. He exerts his will in order to lay down his life for us. So step one, the incarnation. Step two, the suffering of death. But then we're told here, and this is where I want to put our, our primary emphasis today, we're told here that he tasted death for everyone. 
Now think about this. A person may die in such a way as to not taste death in, in the fullest sense. The, the word here uh, is, is talking about a, a full tasting of death. So, you know, people die instantly. People just suddenly die of a heart attack. People suddenly die of a stroke. People suddenly die of an aneurysm, something like that. People suddenly die in a car accident. There's no anticipation. There's no preliminary suffering that leads up to it. There, there's just, you know, this instantaneous thing. So for a person like that, uh, or an experience like that, you, you would not say that they, they tasted death in the sense that what's being talked about here. You see, the death of Jesus on the cross was a slow and a painful death. But it was not merely that it lasted a considerable amount of time, that it was attended with agony of mind as well as pain of body, but that he came as no other finite creature can come into contact with death. You see, Jesus experienced death in a way that no one else ever could. That's what it means when it says that he tasted death. He tasted it to the the fullest extent. All that death was, was concentrated in that cup that he drank. That cup that was emptied there on the cross. He tasted death to the very last drop. That's what it means, that he tasted death for everyone. So, again, this is something that we ourselves could not experience. This is, this is going deeper. All that, all that, everything that death is, in its fullest and, and most complete sense, that's what it means when it says that Jesus tasted death for every man. So, what did he taste in death? He tasted three things in death. First of all, he tasted the, the full curse of sin. The full curse of sin. You see, sin brought a curse upon not just humanity. Sin brought a curse upon everything. Sin brought a curse upon the universe. Sin brought a curse upon the planet. And all of the... All of the misery, all of the suffering, all of the grief, all of the anguish, all of the pain, all of these things are are really due to the fact that the earth came under a curse. So take all of those things throughout all of history and put them together, and this is what Jesus was experiencing when he was tasting death. He was experiencing the, the full curse of sin. And so we read in scripture things like this. He bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. See, somehow this is, this is mysterious stuff. But somehow all of our griefs, all of our sorrows, all of our suffering, all of those things that are a result of sin and the curse that came from sin, somehow that was put on Jesus everybody's grief, everybody's sorrows put upon him personally. So 
this, this is what it means to taste death. The, the full curse. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. The, it, we read in Isaiah, the Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. So Jesus was bearing the, the penalty for the iniquities of us all, every single person. We could, we could not pay for our own sins. Jesus paid for everyone's sins. The Lord laid on him the iniquities of us all. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And so the guilt, the shame, the burden, the alienation, uh, all of that that comes from sin, Jesus tasted it all. Now, I can't even express adequately what this is. And, and I don't even know that, that we can comprehend adequately what this is. This is the kind of thing that you have to really, you have to sit and maybe for an extended period of time, you, you just have to think about it. You know, as I was just kind of, you know, meditating on it in preparation to teach, I, I, I would get these like little momentary glimpses, you know, that they would, they were fleeting thoughts, you know, they would, they would come for just a second. It was almost like I could, I could just start to feel it and then it was gone. But that's the, the kind of thing that we're talking about. But, you know, if you can't imagine in your own mind, I mean, just, just take the suffering that you are aware of. Maybe your own personal suffering, the suffering of family members, friends, loved ones, or you know, just the information that you have uh, compiled over the years about pain and suffering and, and um, shame and uh, alienation and guilt and all of those things. You know, j- just think about that and then realize that that was, that was transferred onto Jesus, but that's just what you're able to uh, think about it. But then you have to multiply that billions of times over for the population of the world from the beginning of time to the end. So when Jesus tasted death, all of that is what he was tasting. And so he was tasting to the fullest extent the curse of sin. But secondly, he was tasting to the full extent the power of Satan. The power of Satan, all of the fury of the devil himself, all of his hatred against God, all of that uh, animosity and and vitriol that that the devil holds in his heart against God and and, and people, those that God loves, it's all being unleashed on Jesus at this time. Verse 14 You remember it tells us that inasmuch as the children were partakers of flesh and blood, so he himself partook of the same that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death. Satan has the power of death. And as we look at history, this is what we see. The devil's power is always used destructively. And from the beginning of time right down to this very day, as we think of uh, the, the destruction of, of human life, the devil is the one who is behind all of that. And he has great power that he exerts destructively. When we think of catastrophic kinds of things, you know, massive earthquakes, or we think of... Uh, you know, typhoons or hurricanes or tsunamis or, you know, all of those kinds of things that happen, those we call natural disasters. Did you know that quite often Satan is the source of those things? And what is the result? It's death and destruction. 
We know he's the source of those things. We have examples in scripture. Uh, Satan uses the powers of nature to destroy Job's family, his children, his servants, and those kinds of things. He stirs up the hearts of evil men to murder his servants and so forth. We, we see that the devil was behind all of that. And it's these kinds of things that Satan does And it's this very thing that Jesus faced when he was tasting death. He faced all of the power of Satan. And so his greatest objective, the devil's greatest objective, is to bring as much destruction to the world as possible. And his greatest power in all his fury was directed at Jesus. So again, this is one of those things that's hard to even comprehend this. It's hard to even get our, our minds even slightly around this. But, you know, maybe just think if you can, uh, you know, maybe it's been a film or something or maybe you've read it in a book or, you know, sometimes there's, there's a description of some, well, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called That Hideous Power. That, you know, there's a description that, that somebody might give of, of this malignant power that's, that's just so hideous that it would, it would cause you to shudder. Well, that's the the kind of thing that we're talking about here. One thing that came to mind, it's probably not the the best illustration, but I think it maybe slightly illustrates the point. But you think of, um, you know, think uh, Emperor, the Emperor in Star Wars. And remember as he unleashed all of his fury on young Skywalker, you know, and, and there he was, maybe, you know, how many of you saw that film? You saw that film, right? It's, I mean, it's like 30 years old, so you've had to see that. It's crazy, though. My little grandkids are all, you know, they got their lightsabers out. They're, you know, Luke Skywalker, Yoda, Darth Vader. It's all come back around. But, you know, in a sense, you know, you remember that picture there where the emperor, he's just all of, all of his power and all of his hatred and all of that is just being directed at Luke. And there's Luke writhing on the ground in pain. And then remember, Darth take, picks him up and he throws him down that shaft. And then at the end, there's this, this you know, this thing of, of just raw power that comes up, this evil power. And... You know, in, in a sense, it's, it's that kind of a thing, but it's, it's much more hideous than that. It's so far beyond that. But this is what it means that Jesus tasted death. All of, of that, that hatred and that destructiveness that the devil has wrought uh, upon the planet from the beginning and upon humanity, all of that was unleashed against the Lord Jesus. So he tasted death. He experienced the full extent of the curse of sin. He experienced the full extent of Satan's power. But the worst part of it all, as bad as that is, the worst part of it all, the most bitter aspect of tasting death for Jesus was experiencing the wrath of God against sin. You see, because that's ultimately what was happening. Jesus was experiencing the wrath of God against sin. You know, here's an interesting thing to realize. We are forgiven, but sin is not forgiven. Sin is punished. We are forgiven because sin has been punished. And the Bible says that God 
um, he doesn't pass over sin, meaning that God cannot simply sweep sin under the carpet. Sin requires punishment, and there's no escaping it. There's no way around it. We can be forgiven, but our sins were punished. That's actually why we can be forgiven, because our sins were punished. And that's what was happening on the cross. Jesus was tasting the full wrath of God against sin. That unfathomable suffering of Jesus was expressed in the words that he uttered from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bore the wrath of God against all the sins of all mankind on the cross. That is inconceivable. We can't even remotely comprehend that. All of the sins of all of mankind were there put upon Jesus. He bore the wrath of God against man's sin and somehow on the cross, Jesus tasted for everyone eternal separation from God. Somehow that happened. I don't know how that happened. Somebody earlier asked me, could you explain that? I said, no, I can't explain it. It's, it's unexplainable. How can we, who are finite creatures, even begin? This is one of those things where God's infinitude, uh, God's transcendence, God's eternality, all of these things uh, that separate God from us, these are where they come into play and, and we don't understand it. But somehow... Beyond our comprehension, Jesus tasted for everyone eternal separation from God because that's the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is separation from God. And there on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's, it's there in, in these hours, these six hours that Jesus hung up on that cross, there in some way that's incomprehensible to us, all of the punishment for man's sin eternally was compacted into that uh, time frame by God. Now, uh, the time frame, I say, it was a six hours from our point of view, but remember, God is outside of time. And we're told later in Hebrews, an interesting thing, we're told that Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. So you see, there's a transaction that's taking place here that is happening in this eternal kind of realm with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are eternal. One God, three persons. It's through the eternal spirit that Christ is offering himself up. So it's because of this nature, this eternal nature of God, that, that Christ was able to suffer in this way. And it's because that he it's because he did that that we do not have to experience that separation from God. So this takes us into the realm of mystery. And you might, in, in view of this, you might just stop and pause and just really say, oh, mystery of mysteries. This is mysterious beyond what we're able to understand at this point. Thomas Gill 
back in the 1800s, he expressed these ideas in a hymn. The hymn was entitled, O Mystery of Love Divine. Let me read to you from it. He put it this way. He said, on thy pure soul did dread and gloom in that drear garden rise, and ours the brightness and the bloom of thine own paradise. For thee the Father's hidden face, for thee the bitter cry, for us the Father's endless grace, the song of victory. Our load of sin and misery didst thou the sinless bear, thy spotless robe of purity do we the sinners wear. Thou who our very place didst take, dwell in our very heart. Thou who thy portion ours dost make, thyself thyself impart. But he's, he's expressing these very things here. For thee, the Father's hidden face. That's what Jesus experienced. And he experienced this bitter cry. But what, what did it bring to us? For us, the Father's endless grace. It was our load of sin and misery that the sinless did bear. And that's what's being talked about here. And so it was the incarnation. It was just the very uh, fact of, of death, that Jesus would will himself. He would exert his power to die, but then he would taste death to the fullest extent in ways that we could never comprehend. And then how, how, how is this possible? How can this be? Well, we're told he did it by the grace of God. By the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. For every single person that has ever lived, Jesus tasted death, and he did it by God's grace. This is that, that covenant between the Father and the Son, that he would come and he would die in the place of sinners. Now, it, this is God's grace because, of course, God was under no obligation to forgive sinners. God created man. He gave man one basic command and warned that in the day that you violate that command, you will die. He gave man so much freedom. He gave him a whole garden full of all of these wonderful trees. And it was just one tree that he said you're not to eat from. And he gave that warning. And man not only disobeyed God, not only revolted against God, but in doing this, you remember, man he partnered with God's ancient foe. Man went into a partnership with the devil. That's what happened there in the garden. And so now here's man in, not just in rebellion to God, but he's aligned with Satan, and God is under no obligation to do anything except destroy that, to obliterate that. But God's deep love for man says, no, I'm gonna make a way. And what is that way? Well, Jesus is going to come and he's going to bear the penalty of sin so God can forgive rebellious men and women. That's grace. He, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. Not because anyone deserved it. No, we deserved the opposite 
but it's purely through his grace. And you know, as we think into the future, there are two separate groups of people, ultimately. Those who are in heaven, in the presence of God, those who are in hell, separated from his presence. Both states will be eternal. Both states will will go on endlessly. But here's the, the greatest tragedy of all. For both groups of people, Jesus tasted death. He tasted death for both groups, but only one group benefits from the death that he tasted. The other group doesn't. And I think this is going to be part of the torment of hell that everybody in hell is going to know that their sins that put them there, their ultimate sin of rejecting Christ, that it was paid for. That it had actually been dealt with. But it was because they refused it. Because they rejected it. Because they said, oh, I don't need somebody to save me. Oh, I don't need somebody to die for me. That sounds barbaric. That sounds immoral. I don't need anything like that. And that, that gift of God's grace, having Christ taste death for them, they end up having to swallow the whole thing themselves, and it is an, an eternal situation. But they have this consciousness. Like I said, I think this is part of the torment. They have this consciousness that there was actually provision that was made. Their sins could have been forgiven. Can you imagine that? I mean, you know, we've all probably done things where we made the wrong choice and afterwards we're just, we're just like kicking ourselves like, oh, I can't believe I did that. Why did I do that? Oh, and you wish you could reverse it, but it's irreversible and, you know, and you're, you're stuck with it. Anybody ever have an experience like that? <laughs> Yeah, I have too. But you know what? I don't want to have. I don't want to have an experience like that that is going to go out into eternity. I don't want to have an experience like that that will go on tormenting me eternally. But, th- but there's that group that will have that. And the great tragedy is that it didn't have to be that way because Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. But then there's that other group. There's that group that is there with him eternally, and hopefully you're part of that. We're part of that. And of course, we, we, all of us can be part of that by, by receiving that gift of grace through Christ. But think about this. So here we are, and we're, there we are in eternity. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this. This is such an amazing thing, really, when you think about it. Christ, because remember the context is that God is going to put Jesus over all things. He's the the representation of humanity. We will rule and reign uh, through him, because of him. Um, And yet to think about this, that our king, our ruler, is one who died for us. 
that every time we look at Jesus, we will be reminded of that one thing that he died for us. Remember how John tells us in Revelation chapter 5, there he was uh, taken up and there around the throne and there's the scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne and the question is who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals and this seems to be the, the title deed to the earth and the, um, the title deed for the, for the new kingdom. Who can, who can open the scroll and loose the seals and there's, there's great uh, weeping in heaven because no one's found worthy. But then suddenly... The angel speaks and says, don't weep, John. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And John says this, and I saw him coming forth to take the scroll out of him who was sitting on the throne, take it from his hand. I saw him as a lamb that had been slain. Our king, our Lord, who tasted death for us, will eternally bear the scars of his suffering for us. So as we are there in heaven, in in the kingdom, heaven and earth merged together, however you want to understand it, that's the reality. As we are there, we'll have that perpetual reminder that our king died for us. Jesus rose from the dead in the same body, but it was a different body. It was a new body. It was a glorified body. But it still had the marks of the cross. And when John says, I saw a lamb as it had been slain, I think what he's telling us is that's how we're going to see Jesus as well. And we will have that continual reminder before us that he, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. I mean, think of that in terms of a, of a ruler. Think of that in terms of a, you know, a king or you know, somebody who has dominion over, uh, somebody who has subjects. Here, this king... He died for us, for each and every one of us. That that is so astounding. That is so powerful. That is so amazing to think about that. That's the reality, though. I think of the Jews. I think of the fact that for all of these long centuries, the Jews have rejected their Messiah. And Zechariah tells us of the, of the day that's coming, God speaking through the prophet, talking about the house of David and, and, and the people of Israel and so forth. There's coming a day they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn, they will lament, they will wail for him as one wails for an only son. That day when the Jews finally realized that this one that we have rejected for all these centuries, this is our Savior. They look upon me whom they have pierced. The wounds are still there. And they see that. And then forever as uh, the temple is rebuilt and Jesus is there upon the, the Davidic throne as a priest and a king, there he is bearing those scars. And there is that perpetual reminder to the priest and to the people of Israel, our our Messiah, our King, our God, his love for us demonstrated by the scars. That's what we have. And so this is what Jesus did for us. We do not yet see the, 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 the full manifestation of his Uh, being crowned with glory and honor. 
That's going to come in the future. But what do we see now? We see that he went through this process of incarnation, of suffering death, of tasting to the full extent death. And he did it for everyone by the grace of God. Which, which group will you be in? God wants you to be there with him forever and that's why Jesus tasted death for you. Don't turn away from that. Don't spurn that. Don't reject that. But embrace that fully because apart from that, there is that other thing, that eternal separation with the greatest regret of all being that someone tasted death for me, but I didn't avail myself of it, and now I live with that eternal consequence. God help us, everyone, to not go there. Lord, help us to know today the truth of what you did through your amazing grace. And Lord, if there's a single soul with us today that has not received that grace, that salvation, had their sins forgiven because they were paid for by Jesus, Lord, if there's anyone with us today in that place, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you draw them with bands of love? Lord, you, you are there with outstretched arms with wounds in your hand demonstrating your great love calling men and women to yourself and today if you're in a place where you've never received God's grace and receiving God's grace means receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you've never done that do that today. Do that right now. Open your heart to him. Ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him to come into your life. Thank him for dying in your place, for bearing the eternal penalty for your sin. And commit yourself to him from this day forward. Lord, work in people's hearts to that end. And Lord, for all of us that know you now and have trusted you, Lord, may these amazing truths, may these things that are incomprehensible in some ways, Lord, may the Holy Spirit give us a deeper understanding as we walk with you. Amen.